Good morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's scripture passage comes from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. He who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place is no, knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, you guys can grab a seat. Uh, hello again. Thanks again for uh, being with us today. Uh, what a joy it is to gather in uh, this beautiful room uh, to worship together. Uh, it's cool. They already had the crowns displayed on the stained glass for the King's Church. So it's like they, uh, they knew all along we were going to be here. Uh, but what's neat is in the back of this room, uh, there is a stained glass uh, window there in the middle on the top uh, that displays uh, Psalm 103, verse 1 at the bottom. Now, in order to see that right now, you're going to have to take a weird angle and squint because those uh, stained glasses are tinted there in the back. Uh, in a matter of a few short weeks, though, I have good news for you. That tint will be down, and we're going to be able to see all the glorious stained glass back there. And you'll be able to read Psalm 103, verse 1, clear as you could see it, right there at the bottom, which says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And I love that that particular verse is displayed in this sanctuary. And here's why. Psalm 103 is a psalm all about worship. It's all about worship. And from the very beginning of the King's Church, we've officially been a church for like three and a half years, but from the very beginning of that time, we have existed as a church in order to see a greater worship 
of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. And that is certainly not changing just because the Lord has graciously given us this incredible church building to worship in. And we exist for that reason, to see a greater worship of Jesus, because we believe a few things. We believe, first of all, that worship is what we are created for. Worship is what we're created for. You and I can't help but worship. We're all doing it whether you realize it or want to or not. And for those who have turned in faith to Christ, clinging to him as our only hope, we have every reason to worship as we're going to see today. Worship is also a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, worship matters because it bears witness to the good news of what Jesus has done. And it bears that witness to a watching world that is in desperate need of him. Worship is practically the battlegrounds where our ultimate hope is played out. I've always loved uh, this quote from a guy named David Foster Wallace. If you've been around the King's Church, I've quoted this before, but uh, Wallace was, a, was an author and he was an atheist, but he was kind of haunted by this whole concept of worship. And here's what he said one time in a commencement speech. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And I think for somebody who doesn't even believe in God, that's a profound thought, isn't it? You see, worship is what we are designed for. We cannot help but worship. And worship is the battleground of our hearts where our highest allegiance is played out. So this morning... For our first service gathered in this room, I want to draw our attention to the realities of worship. What is going on when we say that we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus? And ultimately, our hope and prayer is that this building would be a place where above all else, week after week, Jesus is worshiped and God is glorified. That is the deepest desire of our hearts. So I want to start us on that trajectory together by looking at that psalm that is on that stained glass window in the back of this room. So here's our main idea, and then we'll pray and jump in. Here's what I think Psalm 103 is showing us. We are all called to worship God for who he is and what he has done in Christ. We are all called to worship God for who he is and what he has done in Christ. Before we jump in, let's pause and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you uh, now in need of a uh, reminder and a recentering of our hearts on you, on who you are, on what you've done, and on the good news of Christ. So Lord, as a needy people this morning, may you refresh us and remind us of what is ultimately true from your word. Stir up within us a greater worship of Jesus. Help us to do what that song that we just sang encouraged us to taste and see that the Lord is good. You give us a little taste this time now and help us, Lord, uh, to land at the good news of Christ. Give us right now, Holy Spirit, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
As we walk through Psalm 103, I just want to try to answer three questions for us. Let's begin with, what is worship? Secondly, why should we worship? And then we'll finish with who should worship. So let's begin with what is worship. Look back at Psalm 103, verse 1. This is the Psalm of David. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, if you pay close attention, this is kind of an odd beginning to this psalm. David, who is writing this, says, uh, not, hey, all of us, let us worship the Lord together. That's not where he starts, does he? No, he actually is talking to himself. He's giving himself a little worship pep talk. And I think that we all need this reminder. David is urging himself, his own soul, to bless the Lord. Bless has the idea of praising, of extolling, acknowledging someone for their greatness and their goodness. And I think Psalm 103 gets to the very heart of what worship really is. I've always appreciated Pastor Tim Keller's summary. He says that worship is ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging your mind, your heart, your will, your whole being as you do it. So first of all, worship begins with ascribing ultimate value. And as humans, we just naturally do this. Although, to be fair, we often don't even realize it's happening. It's sort of happening on autopilot. It's what's going on under the hood, so to speak. Whatever you are most captivated by, whatever you view as most valuable, as most desirable, whatever your life is oriented and aimed towards, you'll be esteeming this as most important. This can be anything from ourselves. In fact, that's quite a natural bent for me. I don't know about you, right? I think I'm a pretty important person. I'm guessing you think you're a pretty important person. We just kind of have a natural bent. It could be someone else. It could be a literal object. It could be a position or a title that we've been chasing after. It could be a spouse or a child or the pursuit of those things. It could be the longing for pleasure or power. It could be consumerism and a belief that if we just acquire more things or get this one thing, that all of a sudden our problems will be fixed. It could be comfort or health. You fill in the blank in your own life. Now, here's the hard part. Oftentimes, what we say is ultimate in our lives, functionally, isn't actually ultimate. You see, every one of us experiences a worship drift on a day-to-day -day basis, and it impacts all of us. As Keller says, it's not just our mind, it's not just our being. It impacts all of who we are. All of your life. By the way, this is a preview service. I hear my mic going in and out, by the way, right? We're still we're figuring things out in here, so bear with us. If I were a fly on the wall of your life, though, what would it reveal about your worship? If your bank account and your spending was displayed on this screen, what would make you nervous? What does your calendar and your priorities list reveal about what is ultimate? What do you naturally talk about with excitement? Now, as we think about that, and before you get too down on yourself, here's what I love about Psalm 103. David seems to be in a place where he is fighting for worship, for proper worship of God. We don't know the circumstances surrounding Psalm 103 like we do some of the others. But it seems like to me when I read this that David woke up one particular morning and he didn't necessarily want to have a quiet time. 
He didn't necessarily want to spend time with the Lord. Maybe he didn't want to go to worship people of God. Maybe he was in a difficult circumstance that felt all-consuming. Maybe he was just tired and wasn't feeling it. Maybe God felt distant. We don't know, but can't we relate to that fight? There are moments and there are days where we wake up and we just don't feel it. And I love what David does. Are we following here in verse 1 and 2? It's quite simple. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Brothers and sisters, worship begins by remembering. By remembering. Because we as a people, we are prone to forget, aren't we? Our worship drifts. Our attention span before God is short. We often spend our days scrolling on our phones and we end up quite distracted and disappointed. And so David knows that he needs to urge his own soul to remember who God is and what he has done. This is why Eugene Peterson says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. It's pretty easy to be preoccupied with ourselves, isn't it? Our attention to God is much harder. But David's in the fight. Are you in the fight? He's urging himself, bless the Lord, remember his benefits. He's proactively reminding himself who God is and what he's done. And this reminding is not like just recalling facts or dates. No, it's meant to seep into deep of who we are. It's less a remembering of an anniversary date, for example, and more of the remembering of the feeling of your wedding day. It's one thing to remember your graduation dates, but it's another thing to remember that feeling sitting there, that relief of oh, everything's done, and walking across that stage. It's one thing to remember the ingredients to a recipe. It's another thing to sit down and taste and feast the meal, isn't it? That's the kind of remembering David is calling us to. That is what worship is. So if worship is a remembering that engages our whole being, why should we do that? That's our second question. Let's look in the text again. David gives us two categories to think about here. The first is this. We are to remember the works of the he says, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I love it. David just starts listing off works of God. He gives us six verbs here. First of all, he says that he forgives us all our iniquities. It's no surprise that he begins here. This is the greatest need and the highest benefit for those who have put their faith in Christ and are hoping in the Lord. Nothing will cause a greater drift in our worship, and nothing will cause a greater forgetfulness of who God is than when we are in sin. So David reminds himself, God is gracious to forgive us all our sins. This is why when we gather for corporate worship week after week, we do a corporate confession of sin together. It's meant to remind us that God is merciful, that he is gracious. It is meant to ignite our worship. He forgives us our sins. Then secondly, he heals our diseases. 
Now, in the big picture sense, this is indicating that God cares both about the spiritual and the physical. Now, sometimes this means that we literally are healed from our illnesses and our sicknesses. It's really easy for us to forget in our world of modern medicine that anytime we are healed, anytime we take a medicine or we recover from an illness, God is behind that. In his good, common grace, he brings about healing. But we also know there are some times when God does not heal as we might like. We don't have access to all the answers to the questions that come up in the face of that. But even, brothers and sisters, any ounce of healing we have in this life, it's ultimately temporary until Christ comes back, isn't it? And here is the great hope that is offered to you and I. There is a promise of future healing for all who are in Christ as he makes our broken and fragile and weak bodies new again in the resurrection. He, as the first fruits of what is to come for all of us, that is our hope for healing in an ultimate sense. You see, sin and suffering are often massive barriers for people to worship God, aren't they? But David remembers God has forgiven our sin and he has given us a need in our suffering. There is a healing that will come one day. But he keeps going. He forgives us. He heals us. He redeems our life from the pit. The pit is the image of death. In the Old Testament, it's the place called Sheol. It's the place of the dead. It's often talked about as a pit, but he redeems us from that. But not only that, in a great reversal, he saves us and, it says, he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. That phrase for a steadfast love, in the Hebrew, it's the word hesed. It's really hard to translate. You know what the best translation of that Hebrew word is? It's in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? I started quoting this thing at weddings because it's the best that it is out there. Here is what God's steadfast love is, okay? Sally Lloyd-Jones says, God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is being crowned upon us. He encircles us with that kind of love. And then he satisfies us with good things. He leads our souls and our entire beings to contentment in him. So much of our problem is trying to find satisfaction in other things than God. Remember what David Foster Wallace says, everything else that you worship will eat you alive. If we're trying to find satisfaction outside of the one whom we were designed to find contentment in, it will work against us. I love St. Augustine who knew this firsthand and he wrote, You stir man to take pleasure in you because you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Lastly, he renews us like the eagles, which, was, which were famous for its strength and long life. He gives us new life and gives us strength as we find it in him. Let me encourage you this morning, you can be physically weak, but spiritually strong. In fact, in the scriptures, those often go hand in hand. I don't know if you've noticed that. Whatever weakness you are feeling this morning, turn to the Lord and be renewed in strength. David remembers the works of the Lord. But then secondly, he moves to the character and nature of the Lord. Look at verse 6 when following with me. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As David continues to fill his mind with the things of God, he's actually drawn back to a particular place in Scripture here. He's going back to the Exodus story where God made his ways known to Moses, he says, and the people of Israel. And specifically, he's going back to Exodus chapter 34. In that passage, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he has the boldness to ask the Lord to show him his glory. Now, to see the glory of the Lord was downright dangerous. In fact, it often ended with someone dying. But the Lord graciously accommodates. He tells Moses to hide in the cleft, the cutout of a rock, and he passes by him and allows him just to see a glimpse of his back. That's all Moses could handle. And even with that, he comes down off the mountain and his face is glowing and the people are freaked out. They're like, you got to cover that thing, right? We're terrified of you. That's the glory of the Lord. But here's what we can miss. When Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory, the Lord responds by saying, okay, I will show you my goodness. Not my greatness, but my goodness. In Exodus 33, he says, his goodness will pass before him. And when the Lord actually shows up, listen to the language. This is Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. In maybe the highest moment of God's revelation in the Old Testament, he passes before Moses, and here's what he proclaims. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, David's quoting it verbatim. In fact, in the Old Testament, dozens of times that moment is quoted. Who is the Lord? It'd be wholly appropriate to answer with, song, with Exodus 34. This is who the Lord is. I love what Dane Ortland says in Gentle and Lowly. By the way, if you don't have a copy of Gentle and Lowly, we have some in the connection room, free gift for you. Please grab one. Here's what he says. God does not reveal his glory as the Lord, the Lord exacting and precise, or the Lord, the Lord disappointed and frustrated. No, his highest priority, his deepest delight, and his first reaction, his heart is merciful and gracious. He gently accommodates himself to our terms rather than overwhelming us with his. Brothers and sisters, does that stir you up to worship? It's designed to. We are constantly tempted to doubt the goodness of God. And when God shows himself in his glory, he points not to his greatness, but to his goodness. To his goodness. Now let's go a little deeper. He also says the Lord is slow to anger. Now this is fun. In the Hebrew, this literally means he is long of nostrils. 
That's fun, isn't it? You ever thought about the Lord as being long of nostrils? Well, what does that mean? Well, it's meant, it's meant to be set in contrast to animals that have short nostrils. Think of a bull, a raging bull with their nostrils flared, breathing loudly and heavily. The Lord is not that. He is not short-nosed. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He is not quick to anger. He is slow and abounding in steadfast love. You and I are pretty quick to anger. We're often very slow to love. Right? I thought I was not a very angry person, and then now I have three children. And it turns out there is some deep down there. Right? Like just kind of what provokes out of me. But not the Lord. The Lord has to be provoked to anger. He is naturally merciful. He is overflowing with steadfast love and mercy toward all who would receive his grace. David keeps going. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You know what that means? That means God is not disappointed in those who have taken refuge in him. Do you really believe that this morning? Do you really believe that? I think often we think of the Lord up there in heaven, and he's looking down on us, and he's kind of like, I don't know, arms crossed, like, I mean, they're trying, but a little, little bit missed the mark, right? Ah, see the day-to-day -day reality. Don't we think about the Lord like that? We view him as just a slight look of disapproval on his face. That's not the description here. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far apart are the eastern and western horizons? If you took off and started walking toward the east, when do you hit west? It's a trick question. You never do. If you walk towards the west, when do you hit east? You never do. They are infinitely far apart, and the Lord has removed our sins from us that far apart. Do you really believe that? When we do... The only natural response is worship. There's a lot more that David gets into, but for time's sake, I want to keep moving through this passage. He's going to draw attention to him being a compassionate father who has grace and kindness on his children. We do not last very long in the grand scheme of human history. We are but grass that is here one moment and gone the next, but the Lord is everlasting. He looks at us with fatherly eyes, with compassion with tenderness and with mercy. But here's the best part of this whole psalm. David is writing this well before the coming of Jesus Christ. Every single one of those descriptors that he just gave, he gave without knowing the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? You know what that means, moreover, is that you and I reason to worship. We have way more reasons to worship than David. All of the benefits of the Lord that he is remembering and he's meditating upon, they are absolutely true of God's work and his character and nature in his time. But they are even more so realized when Jesus comes. What David saw and praised was merely a shadow of the substance that was coming in Christ. See, Moses asked to see God's glory. 
And in order to do that, he has to be hid in a rock just so he can barely get a glimpse. But when Jesus comes, the New Testament tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. That the word became flesh. The glory of God took on a human body. And John 1 says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he says, from his fullness, not his reluctance, but his abundance, we have all received grace upon grace. Friends, when we remember the benefits of the Lord, we are specifically to remember Jesus Christ. That is why we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus, specifically. Jesus is the yes and amen to all of the promises of God. Jesus is the hero of the story. You and I are not the hero. The King's Church is not the hero. This building is beautiful. It ain't Jesus. He is the hero of the story. All of this is pointing to him. He came on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost like you and me. The pinnacle of God's glory in the Gospels. Jesus, when he over and over again talks about his crucifixion, he talks about his glorification. The pinnacle of God's glory in Jesus is the cross outside the gates of Jerusalem where he dies in the place of a guilty humanity only to be raised three days later to show that the power of sin, death, and evil has been cut off at the head once and for all. Jesus comes and he shows us in the flesh what it means that God is merciful and gracious. That he is abounding in steadfast love. That he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. All of this is grace upon grace. And all of it, friends, is an invitation to worship with all that we are because of all that he is. So this morning, where... Have you turned for your hope? Where are you looking for satisfaction and meaning and identity and significance? Where is your worship drifting to day by day? Remember that God's kindness to us in Jesus Christ draws us to repentance. It's not his disappointment in us. It's not him tapping his foot in heaven. No, it is his kindness his overwhelming abundance of steadfast love that invites us back again to remember, to turn to him and to receive his endless mercy and grace afresh again. Listen, as long as this church exists in this space, week after week, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to Jesus. We're going to remind you of who he is, and together we're going to receive afresh over and over again his mercy and his grace. But I want to look as a conclusion at the end of the psalm. The last question is, who should, worship, who should worship God? Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all his places of dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Do you see what's happening here? The psalmist has prayed, hot his heart in worship. 
And then he realizes as he's enumerated and reminded his soul of who God is and what he has done, he realizes he's engaging in an activity that is far greater than himself. He realizes that all of creation is doing the very same thing. All of creation is rejoicing in God and blessing his holy name. He remembers that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, that he rules and reigns over all things. And that's where we know Jesus is right now. Because of his finished work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the ruling as the king of all kings. Be a pretty decent name for a church, in my opinion. That's what's true of Jesus. And as the psalmist remembers this, he begins to see everything else around him with a new perspective. He realizes a oneness and a harmony. All of creation is rejoicing and worshiping God. He starts with the angels, the mighty ones of the Lord who do his work, the heavenly hosts, the angelic army. He even says the inanimate works of the Lord on the earth are praising him. They're blessing him. Those who dwell in all the places underneath his dominion, which, by the way, is everywhere, are praising the Lord. You see, the progression of this psalm is not an accident. David begins by urging his own soul to bless the Lord, to get back in the game, for all that is within him to worship God. But then he moves to the community. Notice the tense change there in the middle. He has been gracious to forgive us all our sins, collective, to heal us, to redeem us. But now he realizes he is worshiping God alongside all of the cosmos. Because God is so great, because he is so glorious, and because he is short of the worship of all that he has created will suffice. And that's precisely what all of human history is spiraling toward. Jesus hinted at this in his triumphal entry to Jerusalem in Luke 19. A multitude of those following him began praising his name, saying, Hosanna, son of David, right? Blessed are you in the highest. And the Pharisees, viewing this as improper, tell Jesus, hey, you gotta, you got to quiet down these people. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I tell you, if they were silent, these very stones would cry out and worship. And one day they will. Isaiah 55 pictures a day in the future where the great banquet feast of God's grace is set before his people. And on that day, he says, the mountains and the hills will break forth into singing. The trees are going to clap their hands. The earth is supercharged with the glory of God. When we worship Individually, when we worship alongside the church body corporately, we begin to open our eyes and see what's really real. And when we join that chorus, when we join that song, we are bearing witness to the reality of that coming day. We are bearing witness to our King Jesus. Every time we gather for worship here, and every time we scatter from here and we live distinct lives on mission throughout the week, trusting that Jesus is on his throne, you know what we're doing? We're simply turning up the melody of God's grace to the world around us. It's a song that is faint 
and muffled for many right now. But there are moments in God's grace and on God's mission where he tunes our hearts, when he opens our ears to hear the beautiful song of God's grace over the noise of this world. And it is then when we realize this is exactly what we were created for. This is where my soul is satisfied. This is what I have always longed for. So brothers and sisters, as we mark this moment in time, as we think about the trajectory moving forward, let's bless the Lord and make much of King Jesus together. May this building serve that purpose alone to the glory of God. If you're here and you haven't turned to Christ, do you feel that this is the song that your soul has been longing for? Because if so, he's abounding in love and mercy for you. And if you're here and you know that you've been saved by Christ, like David, let's urge our own souls, bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless the Lord, bless his holy name. May that mark us for as long as this church exists. Sound good, church? Let's do that together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, what you have done. And we know that you are worthy of all of our worship. It is only in you that our souls find rest, that the longings of our hearts, the things that we know that we need but can't quite seem to find, ultimately are answered. So I pray that for every person in this room, they would have a keen awareness of their need for you and that, Jesus, you would meet them right where they are in their grace, with your grace and with your mercy and with your compassion. May you help us to join the song of all creation that is praising you for who you are and what you have done next. May you encourage us as we enter into this next season in the life of our church where we do want to gather for worship. We want to make much of you. We want to declare and display the good news of Christ. And may many people who do not know you join in the song that is being sung by all the saints and by creation itself. Draw us in your kindness to repentance, we pray in Christ's name.